Romans chapter 2, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does, does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Back in the minor prophets, there's a prophet named Amos. And Amos begins his preaching to Israel with one of the most brilliant rhetorical strategies I've found anywhere. What he does is he begins by preaching against their neighbors, uh, who were historic enemies. He starts to the northeast, and he denounces Damascus. 
And then he goes down to the southwest, and he denounces the cities of the Philistines. Then he goes to the northwest, and he denounces Tyre. And you can just hear the Israelites kind of clinking their beer glasses together and giving each other high fives and rejoicing over the destruction of the Syrians and the Philistines and the folks from Tyre and Sidon. And then he goes down to the southeast and preaches against Edom and then Ammon to the east and Moab again to the southeast. And now the the hubbub in the room is quieting down a little bit because these are cousins of theirs. These are distant relations of theirs. And so they're getting this is getting a little bit nervous for them. And then he goes to the south and preaches against Judah. Now they're not just cousins. Now they are brothers and sisters. They have been completely encircled. And then he preaches against Israel. And so the room becomes deathly quiet as they realize that they have been completely entrapped. And when an army is completely encircled and completely entrapped, what is a wise thing to do? To surrender. And that's the point of Amos. Now what we have I bring that up because what we have in chapter 2 of Romans is the New Testament version of that. If you were here last week or if you've read Romans 1, we saw last week a very dark section that denounces the sins of humanity. That, that humanity knows God but suppresses the knowledge of God. And then God gives humanity over to a, a whole host of various sins. But as the the mixed congregation in Rome would have been listening to this, the Jews may not have seen themselves in that list. They would have said, well, these are not sins that that we tend to commit. And they might have been celebrating and congratulating themselves that, yes, that's how the Greeks, the Gentiles, the uncircumcised live. but, But certainly that doesn't apply to us. And so what we find here is that Paul is actually encircling the Jews. And this becomes clearer and clearer as we go through chapter 2. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he refers to, O man. And here he has a fictitious man. He speaks to this fictitious man in, in second person singular, a representative man. And he says, therefore you have no excuse, O man. And then in verse 3, do you suppose, O man. So it might look like he's just talking to generic humanity. But then in verses 9 and 10, we hear a refrain that we've already heard to the Jew first and also the Greek. And then he becomes explicit in in verse 17 where he says, But you, if you call yourself a Jew, the trap has been set, the net has been set, and everyone, the Jew and the Gentile, have fallen into it. That's how this chapter functions. It's first not so clear that he's talking to the Jews, but then it becomes abundantly clear, too clear, uncomfortably clear, that they too are involved in this denunciation, this accusation against all of humanity, which is what takes up much of chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans. Now, in the first section, 1 to 16, there are three arguments. The first argument is, People condemn themselves by judging others for the same things they practice. 
verses 1 and 3, 1 to 3. Every one of you who judges, which is everyone, everyone judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, who are those who judge others for doing the same things that they do? Probably everybody. Probably everybody. I've had couples sit before me, not necessarily in this church, but in the past, looking for marriage counseling, and the husband explodes and says, my wife is so angry. She's such an angry person. Hello. Or as we're just so indignant when people cut us off in traffic or break the speed limit or get too close to our bumper. And yet, when we're in a hurry, we do the same things. Or, you know, Brenda, I don't mean to talk about Brenda, but Brenda is such a gossip. I mean, the other day, I just heard Brenda saying, what am I doing? Gossiping about Brenda, the gossip. And we fall into this all the time. So this is very universal. And he says that this is presumptuous in verse 4. Do you presume on God's mercy Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? So he hasn't judged yet. He has withheld judgment of humanity. But do you you presume upon that to go on doing these things that you condemn in others? He says, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. His, his, His forestalling of judgment is not so that we might go on committing the same things that we judge in others, but that we might turn from that. He's given us the opportunity. Then he says, the result of judging in others that which we do is judgment for ourselves. Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now put this together with last week. Last week we saw in verse 20 of chapter 1 that the wrath of God, or rather verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. So it's already revealed in God's turning over of humanity, but now this is going to the future and saying, and the wrath of God will be revealed on the day of judgment. So now he's, he's turned from present wrath being revealed in turning humanity over to our own devices to future wrath on that day of judgment. That's the first argument. Second argument is that God will judge according to each person's works. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who persist in doing good, verse 7, he will give eternal life. For those who are self-seeking and disobedient, verse 8, he will give wrath. And then he says the same thing but in reverse order. And here's where he starts to starts to turn his hand and show what he's doing here. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, the Greek being the non-Jew, the Gentile, for God shows no partiality. It's like, wait, we've heard this before. We heard this back in chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. The Jew has been first in line. 
The Jew was first in line for the gospel. The Jew was the first in line for the word of God, the calling all the way back, the calling of Abraham out of the nations. The Jew has always been there first in line. But now he says the Jew will be first in line for judgment as well. Why? Well, greater privilege has with it greater responsibility. And so here he begins to turn his hand, show his hand that he's, he's talking to the Jews here. The, the Gentiles have already been encircled, and he's saying, but you, you too, you too need to, to listen to what I'm saying. The third argument is that all humans have some access to God's holy law and will be judged according to their obedience to it or their disobedience to it. And here in verse, uh, verses 12 and following, he says, all who have sinned without the law, those are the Gentiles, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, those are the Jews. Then he says, it's not the hearers of the law, those are the Jews, who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, this is the first introduction of a verb that's going to be very important in this letter. It's the verb to justify. And already we've heard the, the word righteous and the word righteousness. And unfortunately in English, it's a little difficult because um, when we turn it into a verb, we use the word justify. We don't have a verb that would go with righteous and righteousness. But if you want to make one up, it would be something like rightify. Rightify. That is to, to establish as right, to put in the right before God. So righteous, righteousness, to rightify, to declare right, to put in the right. Or if you want to stick with the justice, uh, justice and to justify. Uh, but the idea is a declaration of rightness before God. And we'll keep that in mind. Put a, put a very big sticky note in your head about, about justify or rightify. It is a big theme of Romans. But it says here that it's not those who hear the law, but those who do the law who will be rightified, will be in the right before God, declared to be right. And then you say, well, the Gentiles, what about them? They don't, they don't have the law. And then he goes on and says, well, actually they do. Actually they do. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts even accuse or excuse them. So even if they've never heard, never heard uh, the, the word of God read, never any access to it, they still have the moral law written on their hearts. And you can see this all around the world. In law, these are called biblical laws. These are the laws that kind of everybody recognizes. You shall not steal. You shall not commit murder. These are written on, on, on the hearts of humanity. Uh, honor your mother, your father, and your mother. These are written on the hearts of humanity. Where do they come from? Why are these so universal? Well, God has made them universal. And so, once again, the Gentiles can't say, well, I didn't know. Last week we saw that everybody has access to some level of knowledge of God for what he has revealed in the creation, that there is an eternal God who is powerful. Now we also have another witness, even if we don't have the written word, we have another witness which is inside of ourselves that God has placed in us that is inescapable that testifies to God and to his holy law. 
This will be the standard of, that God will apply on the day of judgment, verse 16. On that day, once again, he's looking forward to that day of judgment. He will apply the standard of his holy law to Greeks and to uh, Jews. That's the first section. And that, that's, that's universal, doesn't it? We, we probably are feeling some of the, the, the pinch of this ourselves. And then he, he zeroes in and he shows his hand completely. But if you, and here he's addressing a singular again. It's, it's, it's second person singular. But if you, now we have not a representative man, human, we have a representative Jew. And he's addressing this Jew in a kind of a, a diatribe style a conversation with this, this representative Jew. And what he does here, we're not going to look at all of them, but he lists 15 characteristics, 15 characteristics of the typical representative Jew. And these characteristics are advantages that they had and advantages on which they were tempted to rely because these were things they had and others didn't have. And these 15 characteristics are divided into three categories of three or of five. So first of all, the first five, verses 17 and 18, are the superior knowledge that Jews had because of their exposure to the law. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew, rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. So that's, that's a superior knowledge. They have a much superior knowledge to the, the average Gentile out there. That's the first. The second is, the second category, are, uh, is their ability to help others because of their superior knowledge. So if you look at verse 19, and if you are sure, because of that knowledge, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So not only a superior knowledge, but a superior position to be able to instruct others. And these were true things about the Jews. And then the last set of, of, of characteristics are a series of rhetorical questions, five rhetorical questions. And these rhetorical questions point out the inconsistency of having these advantages and not living in accordance with them. Verse 21, then you who teach others, you know more, you're able to teach others, great. Do you teach yourself? First question, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? That's kind of an odd one, but it looks like you, you abhor idols, but then you're willing to, to have a, a business that, that deals with, with idols and makes money off of them. And then the last question, it's not as a question in your translation, but I think it should be the fifth question. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And here he's pointing out the inconsistent. You, he's not saying they don't have these advantages. They have these advantages. But they're not living up to these advantages. They're happy to instruct others and apply them to others. But there's an inconsistency here in the application thereof to themselves. Then he ends this section by quoting from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 5. And he says, For as it is written, 
The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So what they should have been, what they should have been, is a light. Look at verse 19. Guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, showing the way. But he says, on the contrary, God's name is, is spoken ill of because of the way you are living. Now, the last point he makes about the Jews is another point that, that they boasted in, and that was circumcision. And circumcision, an operation on, on the males, and it was a, a sign. It was a sign of God's covenant. He gave it to Abraham and to all of his offspring, and so it distinguished them from the nations. And so it was a great, a great benefit. He says, for circumcision is indeed, verse 25, of value. It's a value. Once again, it shows that you're first in line, that, that you were there, that you have centuries of this history. But he says it's a value if you obey the law. Because circumcision obligates the circumcised to obey the law. So it's, it's a value if you obey the law. And, and here he flips things in a very surprising way. He says its value is nullified by transgression of the law and shockingly, Disobedience to the law reduced a Jew to the situation of a Gentile. Verse 25, he says, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And then, likewise shockingly, a Gentile who kept the law inasmuch as he had the law in nature and written on his heart, or from some exposure to God's word, his uncircumcision becomes circumcision, verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And then he says, the tables will be completely turned. You, the Jew, who are sitting there in judgment on these poor, benighted Gentiles, actually it will turn around and it will be exactly the opposite, verse 27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and the circumcision but break the law. The trap has been sprung. The Jews have been completely encircled. And then he says there's a radical redefinition here. Verse 28. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, you might say, now, Paul, you're, you're playing a fast one here. You're radically redefining centuries and centuries of history. But actually, he's not. He's actually building on what the Old Testament says about the, the meaning of circumcision. You can go all the way back to Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Even back that far, Moses is saying this is the import of circumcision. This is what it's about, that your heart would be circumcised. And then this is a theme that comes out strongly in the prophet Jeremiah as well. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord 
He's preaching to Jews who are already circumcised. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath, there it is, wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And then in chapter 9 as well of, of Jeremiah, verses 25 and 26, we have a very similar thing. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Merely in the flesh. And listen to this list. This is a fascinating list. Egypt. Judah. Edom. The sons of Ammon. Moab. And all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. He's lumping in Judah and Israel with the likes of Egypt, Edom, Ammon, Moab, those who dwell in the desert. So Paul is not making up something new here. He's actually preaching the, the depth of what, of what circumcision was all about. Now this serves as a warning, of course, to Jews not to rely on, on having the law, not to rely on their national or religious or racial identity, not to rely on the, the sign of the covenant that has been applied to them externally, but to get at the, the point of those, to obey the law that they hear, to live in conformity with it, and to have circumcised hearts. But this is also an encouragement to the Gentiles. The door is not, and in fact has never been, completely shut to the Gentiles. It, 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 it wasn't as clear throughout the Old Testament, but the door has always been cracked open for those who would become circumcised in heart. And now the door has been thrown wide open in the time of the gospel. Now, you may wonder what this argument, and I realize that Romans is a, it, it's kind of a, a, a legal treatise at the beginning particularly. And it's, it's very tight argumentation, and you, you might wonder what this has to do with you, particularly if you're not Jewish. Well, remember that if you're not Jewish, you were trapped last week. So, and, and this continues to, to encircle you as well. The, the, the novelty of this chapter is that it explicitly encircles the, the Jews and includes them as well. The final judgment, as I said, will not be according to identity, or mere possession of the word or the signs of God, the final judgment will be according to obedience and disobedience to the revealed will of God as it is written in the scripture or written on our hearts. And the result of that will be either justification, rightification, or condemnation. And this, the righteous will be recognized as righteous and the unrighteous will be recognized as unrighteous. Now, at this point, if you are familiar with God's law, and if you are at all self-aware, you should be getting very, very concerned. Like those Israelites in, in Amos' day, as they were getting entrapped and condemned. And as this text has encircled all of us. Now, this section doesn't hold out much hope. And its point is not to hold out much hope. And here, once again, I remind you that what we are doing is somewhat artificial. 
by not just sitting down and reading the whole letter at once. Uh, what we do is we take it section by section. And so um, please come back for your own good the next few weeks. On the one hand, I don't want to spoil the surprise of chapter 3, but there is a hint here of where we're going. In verse 16, it says, On that day, when according to my gospel, what's gospel mean? Good news. God judges the secrets of men by whom? By Christ Jesus. So something else will be taken into account on that day of judgment. That's what we'll get to, the second part of chapter 3. Something else will be taken into account, that the gospel will be taken into account, that, that Christ Jesus will be the one who judges. And so we have in, in chapter 3 the, the great surprise. Um, but I, 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 like I say, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but I don't want to leave you in despair today either. And so what we will find is that God does not disregard his righteousness. He doesn't disregard his righteousness. So he doesn't talk about all this righteousness of God and then to say, just kidding, don't worry about God's righteousness. That's not what he does. What he does is he says, God deals with his own righteousness on our behalf through the man, Jesus Christ, who will be the judge on that day that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of this righteous requirement for the Jew first and also for the Greek on behalf of all who believe in him. That's where we're going in chapters 3 to 5. But also in chapters 6 to 8, we will find that like Israel, our privileges have responsibilities. Our privileges have responsibilities before the world. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, you find that sometimes Israel lived up to their privileges, and they were a light to the nations, but oftentimes they were not. And that's why God's name was blasphemed among the Gentiles, because of them. Now, when Jesus came into the world, among the things he said about himself, he said this, I am the light of the world. Now, we just read in in verse 19 that Israel was to be a light to those who are in darkness. And what we find in, in Jesus coming into the world, he declared himself to be exactly that. In, in John chapter 8, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What's he saying there? He's saying, I'm Israel. I am accomplishing what Israel was supposed to accomplish in this world. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said this to his disciples, You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's he saying? He's saying, I am the true Israel. I am the light of the world. I'm the one who takes the nations out of darkness 
And if I have taken you out of darkness, then you have the mission that Israel had in the past. You, Jew and Gentile, together in the church of Jesus Christ, are the light of the world. So that they might see the light in your lives and might glorify God, the Father who is in heaven. Most mornings in my prayer time, I, I have a collection, various collections of prayers, and I happen to be going through this one again, and it's a, a collection of Puritan prayers. And as I was reading this, I said, bingo. That's what this sermon is about. This is the prayer. Oh God, may I never be a blot or a blank in life. Cause the way of truth to be evil spoken of, or make my liberty an occasion to the flesh. May I, by love, serve others, and please my neighbor for his good to edification. May I attend to what is ornamental as well as what is essential in the faith, pursuing things that are lovely and of good report. May I render my profession of the gospel not only impressive, but amiable and inviting. May I hold forth the way of Jesus with my temper as well as my tongue, with my life as well as my lips. May I say to all I meet, I am journeying toward the Lord's given place. Come with me for your good. May I be prepared for all the allotments of this short, changing, uncertain life with a useful residence in it, a comfortable journey through it, a safe passage out of it. May I be in character and conduct like the dew of heaven, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the fullness of the fountain. May I never be ashamed of Jesus or his words, never be deterred from fulfilling a known duty through fear, never be discouraged from attempting it through weakness. May I see all things in a divine light so that they may inform my judgment and sanctify my heart, and by all the disciplines of thy providence and all the ordinances of the faith, may I be increasingly prepared for life's remaining duties, the solemnities of a dying hour, and the joys and services that lie beyond the grave. The light of the world, folks, living in accordance with what is given us of God's will and his word, has two great advantages, and they're these. It will be for your good on that last great day when God judges the nations. And now it will be useful for bringing those nations to Jesus so that they might see Jesus, the light of the world, in your lives. So let's pray. Our God, we have been entrapped, encircled, condemned these last couple weeks by what we have found in the scripture. We have had our sins pointed out, and Lord, I pray that as we see the inconsistency in our lives, how we judge others and do the same things, how we fail to live up to your word, how we take advantage of your kindness and treat it presumptuously, Lord, how we have failed to be the light to the nations, O oh God. 
I pray that all this recognition, that it would drive us to Jesus, the one who is the light of the world, the one who is the, the fulfiller of all righteousness, the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead. And I pray, O oh God, that going out from this place, that, that the dark places in our life would be turned into light, that we might be your light in this world so that people could see Jesus, the light of the world, in us and be drawn to him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.